0: Welcome to Rooted, a series exploring journeys of faith, hope, and love. When was there a time that you remember growing up? Was there a time where you first, I guess, heard about this Jesus person and then you started to actually like claim him for yourself? Or is your story similar to Beck's as far as growing up?
1: It is, yeah, similar to Bex. It was growing up in a Christian household, going to church twice a week, three times a week, Wednesday nights, Sunday mornings, and Sunday nights, so, oh, yeah, (laughs) whether we wanted to or not, (laughs) Um, but, yeah, so, and went to a Christian school, so, Mm -hmm. I mean, I was surrounded by belief, and it was never anything that I felt like it was pushed upon me, even Mm -hmm. though I'm sure some people say i was brainwashed or whatever but um no i I feel like it was always something that i understood that it resonated like deep within me of yes god is real Mm -hmm. um and having moments of i think just comfort like i think that was the biggest thing for me thinking about it you know growing up Mm -hmm. and in teenage years that that kind of thing of i might not have had any crazy experiences, but I always I always felt like there was someone there mm. just with me.
0: I'm curious, you use the word comfort. Is how you define that comfort different now as an adult than it was growing up in your formative years? I don't think I would change it. I think okay.
1: it's still, I, I shouldn't say, I don't know how I would describe it as a kid, but. <laughs> Um, now like thinking about myself as a kid, young adult at any point and thinking about where I am now, almost, I don't know how to describe it other than like um, like knowing someone is there mm. and someone who truly cares about me and wants the best for me. Yeah. I, I think, however, you know, if we were to ask myself a younger Jason, I think there would have been some form of Mm -hmm. that. um, Maybe not those exact words, but something like that.
0: Was there a time for you when you started to see things or feel things, experience things differently?
1: I think probably around high school age, um, starting to not necessarily think more for myself, but have more of an analytical mind Mm. um, as to why we're doing, you know, going to church on Sundays, yeah. and even still going to a Christian high school, but being removed like the the elementary and middle school that I went to, very small, like tight knit community, mm-hmm. um, going to a high school where, I'm, it's a high school. People right. are doing what they're gonna do, as <laughs> <I guess they laughs> as are. you well know, and so, um, starting to really have to think for myself of why I believe what I believe. Yeah. So I think probably around that age was is, is when I started having more of a, a clarification as to why. Yeah,
0: I love that because I think that that's one thing. Because I So I did not grow up in a Christian household by any stretch of the imagination. Um, thankfully, I had you know, my best friend my entire life um, took me with him and his family. And it's interesting that you use the term analytical. And I think that that's one thing that, for much of my life caused me to not believe in God. Hmm. So it was like the the same principled and and critical thinking skills yeah. that you use, but I just use them on the other opposite, side of, yeah. the, of the door. Um, so that's super fascinating. I want to come back to that sure. a bit. I'm sure just like Bex, there's a litany of examples that you can come up with. Yeah. What's something toward the top of that list, though, that is – Something that was not only powerful at the time, but you still kind of use as that benchmark for when things get upside down in the here and now. It's knowing beyond a shadow of a doubt that God is there. Mm.
1: And it's um, when Silas, he had just been born, and he was born with a rash. He was five days old. Okay. Um, He had a rash all over his body. He had these, they look like pimples. It was red. Uh, white spots with um, like a red kind of halo around them. And we had to take him in for whatever the five day Neural, checkup yeah. after. Checkup. Yeah. And um, we had a fairly new pediatrician. She hadn't, she'd only been practicing for a very short amount of time. And she was um, very concerned. And I don't think she was too sure of herself as to, you know, make a, make a call. But she was convinced that he had, I don't even remember the whole list of stuff. Um, And she was basically telling us that if, and we didn't want her to do anything because this is our newborn baby, but he had hundreds of spots over his body, in his cheeks, on his lips, like it was everywhere. And we're telling her, you know, you're not, we're not going back to the hospital. He's eating fine, you know, all this stuff. And uh, she said, okay, well, how about you bring him back the following day and take Mm -hmm. him? And so she had suggested that we bring him in the following day on a Saturday Mm -hmm. to see a colleague of hers that had years of experience. So we said, yeah, that's fine. So we take him home. And my parents come over and they had just bought one of those like bouncing chairs um, for, what is it, like a hammock almost. So we put it together and I, had, my dad had been taking these classes and, and it was part of this group called the School of the Supernatural um, in Santa Cruz. And he had gone on these I don't remember at that point, what mission trips he had gone to, but literally just praying for people and seeing healing. And so we'd kind of been talking about it for a while and um, said, let's try it out. What do we have to lose? And so we stripped Silas down to his diaper and just stick him in the chair and he's on the table in front of the four of us. And uh, my dad says, you, know, you pray um, and don't close your eyes watch what happens and so we pray and command in the name of jesus that these spots be gone that this rash is is healed immediately and we watch as the red halos suck in towards the white spot slow you know slowly and then disappear and we watched as dozens and dozens until it wound up to be maybe 30 and we're going from a hundred or so and so it's a much much smaller number like wow how do you how do you dispute that mm. um and then we you know next day next morning we wake up we take him to his doctor's appointment and there's like three spots on him and there's one in his mouth and I think there's like two on his body and so the doctor was like I don't know why you guys had to bring him in or he, he's fine like look at him there's nothing wrong with this kid so that's one that in my head is like, it's incredible to see the power of God now. And I like it too, because there are so many Christians who don't believe that God is the same yesterday, today, and forever, that that's an old Testament or, you know, that ended when Jesus or you know, that's a biblical thing that doesn't happen now. No, it very much happens now. And I have more stories like that that are just mind-blowing to me that it happens, and it happens here in America too. So that's that's one of them for me, where it's like, God is real, this happens.
0: One of the things I find most interesting about that, and I can relate with that, only a only very little. But what I do relate with is, you know, we often, I think, as parents would much rather any pain in life happen to us than our kids. Um, And so I see how that particular instance was something that not just reaffirms your faith because of something that happened to you directly, but something that happened to um, something so precious as your baby boy. Yeah,
1: and to be that new in life. I've got another one too. When I was in high school, Played basketball all my life. Um, was at a basketball camp over in Santa Clara and I felt this intense pain in my back. Didn't know what it was. Turns out it was sciatic, you know, hurt my sciatic nerve and um, had had issues with it for a long time. You know, this happened in high school. Um, fast forward to probably around 2010. I had already become a deputy sheriff and it was working patrol, wearing a duty belt, you know, around my waist. And I, it, when you put on all the gear of being in law enforcement, it's about twenty five extra pounds, and a lot of it's around your hips, and it's it's hard on your lower back. And so, every day I was having this pain. No, it'd have to be. No, I guess that's about about the time. Um, the time frame somewhere in there, maybe I don't. I think it was before Silas was born. Yeah, so 2010 to 2012, somewhere in that window. Um, I would call my dad on the way home. Ah, oh, pops, my my leg, my back is hurting so bad. Can you pray for me? So he'd pray for me. Pain would go away, but then it'd come back. We're like, man, why does it keep coming back? Mm. And so I was over at um, Beck, and I went over to their house for something, and he, we were chatting about. It. My dad and I were chatting about you guys are your legs the same length? What are you talking about? Like, how is that even coming to your mind? And he had just come back from a missions trip. And he's like, I just prayed for this person. And like, their legs were different lengths. Um, I was like, I don't know. So he's like, well, let's check it out. And so um, went to the dining room and sat on a hard oak chair. And um, he had me put my, my lower back, scoop my my butt back all the way. And then he um, sat in the other chair across from me and held my legs up. And you could clearly see that my left leg, which is the one that I was having all the pain with, was about a half an inch shorter than my right leg. Uh, I was like, okay, well, that's not good. Obviously, I mean, that could very well be the issue that we're having. And so he calls Rebecca and says, hey, come here, you gotta see this. And so she's standing behind him, and it's just simple prayers, but it was, in the name of Jesus, leg, I command you to grow. And uh, I don't know how to describe it other than I felt my left femur get longer. And I looked up, and I had like this, it just was like this warm sensation over my body. And I look up, and Rebecca is like, Eyes are like (laughs) dinner plates and her mouth's on the floor. She's just looking at me. And what did you see?
2: His leg grew out. (laughs) It was, even now sitting here all these years later, when I think back to that moment, I'm like, that wasn't real. (laughs) But it was, it was absolutely real. I watched his leg grow out. It was the wildest thing.
1: And I have not had sciatic pain since. Like that was, that was it right there. It was, my left leg was shorter than my right leg and now they're the same length.
0: <laughs> I'm fascinated. I am fascinated. There's more. <laughs> if you call right now, you get Jason's complete testimony. Um, <clears throat> um, so let me ask this, um, because I I love those very, in both your cases, very, very real life situations I think a lot of folks can identify with, right? Um, Together and Jason, you in particular went through some like brutal health issues um, not too long ago, um, <laughs> similar to your your son's um, mystery dots disappearing, similar to your leg mysteriously growing. Um, like you are a rarity. You have beaten so many odds that doctors have put before you and your family um, that even as your friend and not being directly involved in that, there's an old saying that I love to turn to. And that is a person with experience is never at the mercy of a person with an argument. And, and and I think that, you know, that here's another example for both of you, really, how, how God showed up in this very miraculous way. Um, I'd love if you, if you could just kind of take us both of you on, on a little bit of a journey, give us a little bit of background of some of the health issues and even some of those low points, because my goodness, there were some low points in, in those, those years. And so give us a little bit of context for this part of your story.
1: Sure. Um, well, to lead into it, kind of give the the cliffhanger, I guess not a cliffhanger, but I was essentially on my deathbed, um, in Stanford hospital and, um, had a miraculous encounter with God. And five days later, I, walked out of the hospital. Mm. Um, Rewind. So in October of 2013, Mm -hmm. I was diagnosed with acute myeloid leukemia, um, which is a death sentence for most. Um, At that point, Mm -hmm. it was something like a 20% chance to live. Mm -hmm. No, Beck's shaking her head, she knows all the numbers. It
2: was, well, the diagnosis of acute myeloid leukemia is a 25% chance. And then- Of survival. Of survival. Mm -hmm. And there's 13 subtypes to AML.
1: Which we didn't know the subtype. That's what I'm saying at that point.
2: And then we learned (laughs) Jason's subtype, which of the 13, his was the worst. It was monosomal karyotype, which means his chromosomes had mutated. Mm. Um, And the survival rate dropped from 25% to 7%. Wow. So, it's my miracle husband.
1: (laughs) So it was, it it moves rapidly through your body. Mm. And I was told, I got a phone call from our local um, hematologist, blood cancer doctor, that you have leukemia and you have to go to Stanford. And this was on a Wednesday, October 30th. Um, yep. She said, I've already made an appointment with you. This Friday, you're yep. meeting with a hematologist in at Stanford. Mm-hmm. And we went and met with them. And he said, you're coming in on Monday. Right. Um, there was no waiting. It was immediate. Mm-hmm. I, I uh, It was interesting because I packed a duffel bag um, with my clothes and toiletries and had my pillow under my other arm and walked into the basement of Stanford, um, it's called F-Ground is where they do, at least at that point, was where they were doing all their leukemia and lymphoma treatment and knew that I was not going to be leaving for at least a month. Mm-hmm. Um, walked into and had never been to the hospital for anything. Um, I was 33 years old and had never had any major issues. Uh, I broke my back, but forget, <laughs> forget that. that thing. I walked out of the hospital with that one too. Um, uh, Had never stayed in the hospital. And so walked in and at that point had a a roommate and he looked like a cancer patient. I mean, he was that gross white that you get when you have chemo and he was bald. Mm -hmm. And I remember walking in and he goes, welcome to F ground. I was like, wow, that's, you know, in my head. I'm like, how am I going to do this? And then- It's like going to summer camp but from hell uh, because I throw my bag down on my bed and Beck isn't allowed to stay. And so I remember just kind of sitting on the bed and looking out the window like, what am I doing here? Because at that time, I felt fine. Mm -hmm. Prior to that, while while they were working on the diagnosis, I was nearly dead then as well but had had three blood transfusions and felt great because I was – I got the oxygen to my brain that I needed. So, felt fine and didn't understand why I was there. Um, the next day, they put in a PIC line, you know, surgically implanted a line in my arm. And then I started chemo the day after that. And it was seven days straight of watching this reddish orange liquid go into my body 24 hours a day, seven days straight. Um, and then I was. They knocked out my immune system so bad that I then spent the entire month of November in the hospital just recovering from what they did to me. And then knowing that I was coming back the next month and the month after that um, for more of it. Mm-hmm. And then having the crushing news of, well, we've done some tests and the type that your body is, your body isn't responding the way it needs to, to the chemo. So you're now going to have to have a, a bone marrow transplant. So then it was going through the process of trying to find a match for me of someone that would, um, be able to donate, not only to find someone who was willing, but, um, who had enough of a match to my own genetic makeup that I could have their, um, their cells in my body and uh, thankfully it didn't take long. I'm gonna make a plug right now though for for Be The Match. I got lucky because I'm a mix of different European races, predominantly German and Germany has the largest donor um, list in the world because they require their citizens to register, they don't require them to donate but they require them to register and with a bone marrow transplant, this goes beyond blood type. Um, It goes down to like your, almost your genealogy. Like you have to find someone of a similar makeup Mm -hmm. to you. And so the more obscure someone is, and I don't mean that in a negative way by any means, but if you're part Japanese, part Hispanic, part name anything else, then you have to find someone else who is of similar Mm -hmm makeup wow. um, and they have to match then all these other characteristics that they look at and so I got really lucky and they we didn't hear anything for a few months and so we decided to ask like hey what's going on have you found anybody yet and it's just it's just waiting mm-hmm. um for more chemo and for this transplant and so they' said that they found a number of people and they were just trying to figure out which one would be the best. So they ended up finding um, this gal, her name's Josie. We know her now, um, but this gal from Germany, she was willing to donate to a complete stranger and go through pain herself to help save my life. Um, Went through bone marrow transplant, which was absolute hell. And I was just progressively, this was one where I had five days straight of chemo the sixth day I had off, the seventh day I had the transplant. Um, They have bone marrow transplant down to its science. We had to read through a booklet and know what to do, what not to do, and what's to come. And they tell you pretty much two weeks after transplant is when it's bad. And it was bad before that, you know, it's, it's not fun. I was going through all kinds of side effects but two weeks hit and I was no longer eating. I couldn't drink. Um, I had sores all in my mouth and down my throat. I couldn't swallow. Um, I had in my PIC line, I think I had eight separate pumps, all of different pain medications, different vitamins and medications keeping me alive. I was on IV nutrition, couldn't eat. and I was on oxygen at that point. I wasn't. Uh, I was having a really difficult time breathing. I wasn't awake much of the day. I was. I was asleep for most of the day. I had lost a ton of weight. Um, I couldn't. I couldn't walk. Um, I just used the commode on the side of the bed. Um, it was. It was getting really bad. And this is where I turned to my wife to give her two cents of, of yeah, that.
0: And and. Because we obviously want to hear from Bex, but before we get there, I want to ask you though, Jason, yeah. because I, I would imagine being on so many pain meds and away from home and away from family and loved ones and the feeling of isolation was very real. And so help us to understand like what, what was your relationship with God in those moments?
1: Complete peace. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> it's- it's tough to say it without getting choked up but truly knowing that there is a god in that moment um never doubting it and i don't i don't know if i don't know why i thought what i did but i was glad that it was me and not someone else i knew that i could handle it um i had told rebecca and she teases me and she tells other people when I told her this, but when we looked at, I had a 20% survival rate. I said, well, I'm better than 80% of the population, but that's not because I was cocky. It was because I was sure of, of who I was and God and what I had seen. I had seen my leg grow out. I had seen my son be healed. Mm-hmm. And I knew that I could handle it. And so it wasn't, it was, for me, it was, let's just get it over with. I can do this. I have no doubt in my mind. I don't, I, don't, I don't care about the odds. It doesn't apply to me. And so having peace and actually honestly enjoying being in the hospital at certain moments of interacting with these nurses that I tried not to ask for much um, because I knew there was a lot asked of them. And they saw death daily. Um, to try to almost be like a beacon for them, they loved coming in our room. Rebecca stayed with me most of the time and they would come in and they man, I just like being in here it's it it feels like a spa is what they would say. It's like, how is that possible when you walk out of our room and you do you feel death is present mm-hmm. um, there's a coldness to the floor and a darkness to it and part of the way we prayed. Knowing that there is a spiritual realm and a spiritual world around us of not allowing those spirits to be in our room, but just ask God for his presence to rest in our room. And so knowing that they're having an encounter with God, they just don't realize it. Mm -hmm. Um, so it's really cool to look back and think about like, I enjoyed giving them, uh, peace. Yeah. Um, there were mornings where I, 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 it was difficult. It was survive a day, survive an hour, survive a minute, just mm-hmm. breathe. Um, but I remember looking out the window and just singing hymns, and it brought such, <clears throat> it brought such comfort to me, mm-hmm. to to hear it and. A, it's weird to say it but to hear myself say, it, you know, it almost strengthened me even more. Um and yeah, I just I felt peace throughout the whole time I was there. I never was scared. Um and that's not because of me, that is truly because of of God and and I don't I don't know what it would be like to go through that without having a firm foundation. Um, I I met a number of people going through the process that succumbed to the percentages. They didn't make it. They died. Um, six of them that that we that we came to know and befriend, and they they didn't make it. And I I wonder what it was like for them to to not have the peace, to to most likely fear what was to come. And I never had that. So, um, you know, the moments where the fleeting moments of me being awake and then falling back asleep of I wonder what it was like for them during these moments. Because for me, I would look up and I'd see Rebecca there or I'd see these nurses that obviously had come to care about me and mm-hmm. are – Amazing people to to work where they work and to do what they do um, and just feeling co- comfort again um, and just going back to sleep and not ever wondering if I was going to wake up again it was like a okay I'm just going to go back to, I just need to rest right now I had asked my doctor a few years after just to clarify I said I've been thinking about what you did to me, and you tried to bring me as close to death as possible and then cross your fingers that I would live. And She said, yeah, that's basically it. We drove a truck over you, looked to see if you were still moving, backed over you again, and then ran over you a few more times.
0: Jason, what would you say to that cynic who says that it's the cocktail of drugs that were coursing through your veins, that it was um, some of the best most highly trained physicians and nurses on the entire planet. Um, that it wasn't God that reached down and saved you, but it was these people and their use of science.
1: I would say there was this day that I was bad. I was i was on my deathbed. Um, I was on full-blown oxygen. I was mm-hmm. using my morphine drip constantly. With the amount of pain i was in and um rebecca is better at telling you what she saw of me and how bad it was and the way the nurses started treating her of no longer smiling and you know making jokes they just embraced her this day and um i had to go into a procedure That day, my lungs were full of fluid. I was drowning. I was septic. I was riddled with infection. And um, I'd say just something that's simply that God is real, and his love for us is bigger than anything we could ever imagine.
0: Thanks for listening to Rooted. Rooted is a production of Faith Community Church in Santa Cruz, California. For more information about Faith Community Church or to experience more stories of hope from the Rooted Archives, please visit us online at santacruzfaith.org.